Open Windows Podcasts. A venture of Hit the Road Cultural Journeys. A journey in time to music and the arts for your enjoyment and enrichment. Presented by Orhan Ahuskal, DMA, solo violinist and former professor of violin and chamber music. Everybody, hi. I am very happy to be here. I'm very excited and very honored. I have a great guest. She's a wonderful musician, a professor. Let me actually quickly introduce. But with that, we were just talking about this. My guest, Barbara Westphal, I was looking at her bios online. Here's how you should approach to information online. It says the American violist. And Barbara says, I am not an American violist. So she's a German violist. And you come from... Munich, yeah, Barbara? Yes, I grew up in the outskirts of Munich. Okay. But you studied in London and New York, it says. That's that, right. that part that is, is correct. That is <laughs> okay, let's look at it like that. You took a concert examination with Itzhak Perlman? Yes. And Michael Tree from the Guarneri Quartet. That's right. These are correct. Okay, where were these? Where did you do these things? At Yale and at actually Brooklyn College, where at the time Perlman was teaching long time ago. That was his first teaching. I see, okay. Teaching position. And uh, yeah, I had to take the train out to Brooklyn every week and it was an adventure. Um, terrible school, but I loved the lessons with him. Train to Brooklyn from Manhattan? From Manhattan, yeah. It's like three quarters of an hour. <laughs> Flatbush, Flatbush Express train. Yeah, it occurred to me soon that this time was a lot of time I could use to do things with and not just sit on the, on the subway. So one of the memories I have from that time was actually how to learn mentally, because I learned Bach V's cello suite on the train, looking at it, making fingerings, uh, understanding the harmonies and the structure and everything. And then some weeks later, when I thought, now I know it by memory, I took my instrument and to see how, how it would work. The first time you actually played <laughs> the piece, yeah? <laughs> it was really, it was fantastic. This was also in the time, it sounds probably in Perlman, I studied violin with Perlman, of course. So, but during that time, I was already leaning toward the viola, having projects on the viola just to see, because I was asked to play in a quartet. And that's why I learned the Bach fifth, because I had always wanted to learn it. So it was one of my first projects on the viola. That's what I was going to ask. You didn't play the Bach fifth suite on the violin. No, so. No. <laughs> no. so both the instrument and the pieces actually were new for, for right. you. <laughs> yes. Now, talking about your bio, the, some of the things were not correct in this bio that I found online. It says you, you've concertized all over the world, but part of it is not true. Like it said, you're an American violist, but you're not. <laughs> you're no. a German violist. Okay. No, but uh, the what story do you think? about the bios is funny because years ago, my... Then piano trio, when I was still a violinist, went to play in Brazil, and they had asked for. First of all, it's uh, you have to be prepared that when, once you get to a place, uh, you might find out the concert has been postponed by a week. <laughs> in <laughs> South America, it's, it's very sometimes okay. very iffy with the organization. But anyway, they had asked for bios and all the PR material that you usually send to sponsors before you go and play there, and I had sent my bio. And when I looked in the program, when we played, um, I thought, is this a different person? <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> they apparently didn't know some of the names of my teachers that I had put in my bio and, and thought that they weren't famous enough for the Brazilian public. So they rewrote my bio. <laughs> With more and famous teachers. With more famous teachers. So I had studied with Yasha Heifetz and with um, <laughs> Kreisler and with you know, people even dead at the time. <laughs> it was just very bizarre. But for them, that was important because people would come to the concert if the bio sounds like she studied with the most important people, you know, that you've ever heard of kind of thing. <laughs> it's a selling point for them then. It's a selling point, Absolutely. They, they don't really want to know what you actually did. <laughs> actually did, but <laughs> no. something famous and flashy. But that was the, the most uh, interesting case of just what I had sent had nothing to do with what they actually wrote in the <laughs> That's in a the funny program. story. <laughs> yeah. 
So it looks like the um, the tradition continues, and your bios online have information that's not really <laughs> correct. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it it, it it is true. People do want to read uh, so famous something so big and all of these superlatives and. It's it, that's what attracts audiences. Unfortunately, not the music itself sometimes, but the name. It's very uh, annoying. I think that's it very, is very sad annoying. that that's the way it is. But it's just like you have to have reviews, and they need to be full of superlatives, like you said. And then you get hired more often. But anyway, that's that's part of the <laughs> part of this profession. A part that doesn't really make me so much at home in it, but <laughs> but it's part of it. So. Well, with that, I put a little post on, on social media last week that I said we were going to have a little podcast recording. I tagged some of my violist friends. One of them responded and said, you played in his first concert in London and you played the violin. I didn't know that. I didn't know you started as a violinist, you yes, see. Yes. And, and he sent his regards. He says, I don't know if she will remember me. His name is Julian Shaw. Julian Shaw. In London. You played Mozart duets, I understand. <laughs> because he's a violist, <laughs> so you played the violin well. part. Maybe it was during my time as a student there at the Royal College, that's very possible. Yeah, it has to be. Yeah. Certainly, sounds like that. Great, so he says hello. Okay, well. <laughs> he might be listening to it. <laughs> hello, Julian. <laughs> okay, so you were in London. You studied before New York or yes, later? Yes, before. It, I, I was... Uh, typical young person enamored with the city of London. I just went to London because I wanted to live in London. That was my aim. I didn't care much who, who to study with. It was just really yeah. childish. Kind of. <laughs> so I got a place and I studied with someone who turned out very quickly was no match at all. Didn't work for me. Okay. And after three months I, I asked for a change to have a different teacher and then I had wonderful a couple of wonderful years with Francis Mason who was then in the London London music group it was a London chair music group and she yeah she played a lot around London and was a wonderful person and perfect teacher for me okay well with that let me since we got to that point you've yourself worked as a professor here in Germany since 1989 That's right. and you retired last year yeah mm -hmm. uh, from Lübeck Yes. Musik Hochschule. That's right. Okay. This, I was going to ask you this later, but since it came up, there are a lot of young people, young aspiring musicians. What would you recommend? Is it like, okay, I like, I'd like to go to Berlin. I don't care who I study with. <laughs> Not no, what happens, no. but what happened to you? <laughs> it was definitely a mistake, I would say. However, one that I think I'm very forgiving of because I understand people's, young people's... Um, curiosity and, you know, thirst to live in an exciting place like London, New York, Berlin. Mm -hmm. Just one reason it was not always easy to get good people to come, talented people to come study in Lübeck, which is also a beautiful town, but it's not the... It's not one of those yeah, you know, famous cities, exactly. Yeah, and, and doesn't... I mean, it has other advantages, but... So, what I would recommend anybody now <clears throat> is obviously to, to first go, and I have recommended to students of mine when they go after they've studied with me, they go to do a master's with somebody else or something like that, they should always go and play for teachers and listen to their teaching other people and get to know some students of theirs to see if it's a good match for them because I think, I believe very much that there's no such thing as a perfect teacher for everyone. It's a very personal matter. Exactly, because we do still the very old-fashioned master and that's apprentice right. kind of relationship that's really important. It's really personal. It's like a, any kind of relationship. It's absolutely very personal. With the wrong electric, it, it doesn't always work out. Even if the person is the greatest player or greatest teacher, it just doesn't work like that. It's sometimes even just chemistry, you know. It just somehow... <clears throat> I've, I've noticed that... Even just personal things, this may seem a little strange, but if somebody comes with a very heavy perfume <laughs> and okay. I think, oh, I'm going to have to smell this every week the person comes to the lesson, <laughs> it can be very difficult to imagine. And naturally, the, the talent and the yeah, abilities, you know, if I see potential in a person, that's the most important thing, obviously, mm -hmm. by far. But even little things like that can, can play a role sometimes. It does. I've had similar experiences. I won't go into details, but I agree with you. It is difficult, exactly. 
Now things have changed a lot in the world. It's easier to travel. For instance, I never had the chance to go and try teachers. If I had a chance to just go there once and I was already a full-time student, then they assigned me a teacher. My first time in England, I was lucky. I actually enjoyed learning with, with that teacher, Malcolm Layfield. Uh, and then I found other people to play to. But in, in the USA, then I ended up, they gave me some teacher who was not much older than I was, didn't do anything for me. So she was always very complimentary, but I didn't need the compliments. I needed the, the poking and, you know, fixing things. Constructive input. Exactly. Then I actually, uh, for after a few months, after I became more acquainted with the system and with people, I asked Jean Drucker, who was the, of the Emersons, and they were in residence there. So I ended up studying with Jean and later on part-time with Phil together. So it's important. So if they can, they should travel, play for different teachers with whom they get a much better rapport. That's very important, much more important than what school it is. I think Sometimes. so. Yeah, certainly. We continue with your bio. You, you are <laughs> foremost a um, viola soloist and a chamber musician. That's right. Your career started with the Delos or Delos? Delos. Delos. String quartet. It's it's a Greek. The name of a Greek island. Okay. And it's yeah. It's I even went there one day because I wanted to see what it's like. And nobody lives there anymore, but it has beautiful antique uh, relics that you can look at. But anyway, that was the name of the quartet, and um, I joined. A, I was not one of the founding members. I joined the quartet. That's that was actually my initial reason for playing viola because they were looking for somebody for just a year at first. Okay. And um, and after the one year. It became seven years, so, <laughs> and then by then, I didn't play both violin and viola anymore. I just decided if I wanted to do it well, that I should stick to doing one. So I picked the viola. So that was the reason that you decided uh, yeah, to go into. Mm-hmm. Yes, I would say so. And of course, you know, any violist. Uh, yeah, I've played with orchestra many times, but I think you're never a soloist when you're a violist. You just, <laughs> you know. I didn't play, I've never played in an orchestra professionally, that's true, and I've mostly played chain music and I've quite a few times played with orchestra, but I would not really consider myself a soloist, it's, there are not enough opportunities for anyone. For anyone right now, I think that's true, everybody has to, there are very, very few people who could actually make a living just playing solo. I don't know of anybody, and that of includes, anybody, okay, includes people like uh, Tapia Zimmerman and um, Kim Kashkashian and yeah, all the few, very few big names that there are in the yellow world. They all, uh, they, they, yeah, they teach, think, they play mm-hmm. lots of chamber music, they, they do a little bit of everything. <laughs> You're right. We, um, when you mentioned um, you, this the reason you changed to, to viola, I wrote a book a few years ago. I don't know if I told you. I think you did. And it, it's of a violist, of a very famous right. Turkish, well, from Turkey, the most famous Turkish violist. And when you were in London, he actually was in London already, and he had just started at that time with the English Chamber Orchestra, I believe. And I had a podcast with him, but he also started as a violinist. And I think that was common at, uh, earlier on. Everybody just played the violin. Unfortunately for the viola, it was mostly like who could not do the violin was moved on to the viola most of the time. That has changed, of course. That that has it changed. should had to change, but yes. it, that was silly. But I remember he had two stories why he switched from violin to the viola. One of them is official. Again, they had a string quartet and somebody had to play the viola. And he basically got the short stick. Uh, but the unofficial story was that he had loaned his violin to his girlfriend and it, it for the summer. At the end of the summer, she did not want to, the, uh, the violin returned to him. She preferred the violin to him. So, so the, she had taken the violin, so he ended up you know, playing the viola kind of unofficially. He was, of course, that was the jokester he was. But now, do you think that people should start from the beginning on the viola rather than the violin and then switch to the viola as kids. Well, my personal opinion about this is that I think it's wise to start on the violin and that has very simple reasons. People are smaller, they're not fully grown. Hopefully they should start when they're about five something. If you really want to get far, that's the age to start on a string instrument in my opinion. And then you can learn the technical, the base, basic technical technique 
on the violin, which is so much easier, so much easier than on the viola. And it sounds so much better. If you, like a, a former student of mine who is now teaching at a school, in a music school, neighborhood music school, I guess you would, might call it, um, um, it's, she's teaching violin and viola. And she's had, she has a violin maker friend who puts special bass bars into big violas, that, uh, big uh, violins that make them sound like violas and, you know, just kind of gadgets like that. Okay. But I, in my opinion, it's really better to have them play violin, have it sound good, and then go and change at a certain point when the body has grown enough to, to be able to do that. And then I think it, everything's easier on the, on the viola. Now, people like Tabea, she learned from the very beginning, she learned viola. Okay. She never played violin. And of course, in, in German, those are called Edelbratschen. Edelbratschen. <laughs> if you never played the violin, but right away the violin. <laughs> For me, the reason really was that actually in a string quartet, I'm, I think it's very nice to be one of a kind. Sorry. No, no offense taken. So. I mean, okay, good. Because playing the violin is wonderful, and I actually do it for fun again quite a lot these days. Uh, and I play quartets actually on the violin. Okay. Um, and I enjoy so much how easy it is. But the point is, for me, the sound is something very, very special. And I think unless you have a special love for that kind of sound, you should also not really play viola. I think there are a lot of violinists who think, oh, it's all the same. You just pick up a viola and it's, it's, if I'm a good violinist, I'm also a good violist. I don't think that that's really true. I think there's such a thing as it helps to play the violin first, to learn the technique, and then to switch to the viola. But don't switch to the viola unless you have a special, a special connection with that sound, you know, which it has its beauty and its difficulties. It's in the middle. It's not very loud. When the trumpet player always says, am I soft enough? The viola player always says, can you hear me? <laughs> but it's so. true. It's, it's, it's about your personal voice. Um, yes, right. in, in, in our yeah. case, it's, the, it's through the instrument. Yeah. But like, you know, with my wife, it's, it's your voice, your actual voice, and then your personality's voice together. In that way, violins are sopranos, and they have, there's a lot of egos and and that kind of stuff uh, like i want to be heard i want to be the loudest sometimes i want to be in the forefront <laughs> right right it's it's definitely true that there is if i i don't like generalizations but there there among violists there's uh, great uh, friendly connections everywhere and um, they're not people don't look for they, they want everyone to do well and to have opportunities to help each other they yeah, that's certainly one of my experiences with the with the instrument. You play with the Delos String Quartet, and you won the International String Quartet competition in Colmar, France. This says playing string quartet. I know I had my quartet for a few years, not not like a quartet career, uh, because that's that's a, a four way relationship, and that's very difficult. We didn't even name the group as a quartet because we didn't mean to become a quartet in the traditional sense. Mm -hmm. We didn't mean to play the standard rep. We just had a different goal yeah. of playing works that nobody else played, that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. And we always collaborated with a fifth wheel, let's call it, with a pianist or a cellist and always played quintets. Yeah. But so you played in a quartet. That's a very difficult thing. Now you have, since 2009, Bartoli String Quintet. Right. Uh, where there's two violas, yeah, yes. two violins, two violas, and a cello. How would you uh, compare the two? A string quartet versus a string quintet? Is uh, is the dynamics very different because number is five? Or uh, in my case, the dynamics are extremely different. But I'm not so sure that has anything to do with quartet versus quintet, but more okay. with the particular people involved in the in the two groups. And in the in my quartet, in which I played for seven years. Uh, it's already 12 now with a quintet, but seemed seemed like a long time anyway, like a certain chapter in my life anyway. And we traveled a lot and we played up and down lots of concerts. But the dynamic was very difficult because in the group there were different priorities of how to deal with rehearsals, how... Uh, do I come to the rehearsal and I still want to try ideas out or 
or I'm coming and I already have a, some kind of a concept, which of course can be changed again, but they were just different concepts of how to go about learning repertoire. And so after seven years, I realized that it wasn't going to be my home, my musical home for the rest of my life. You mean the quartet or the that quartet. particular quartet? Overall, this particular, the no, no, uh -huh. the particular quartet. No, okay. in fact, when they had found somebody new to take my place, I listened to the first concert that they played from the back and I cried incredibly because I was already missing that music. The music, the quartet mm -hmm. music is, uh, is just it's wonderful. incredible. However, and, this, and then I, I came back to, to Europe in 89 and I tried to form another quartet. I had various tries with wonderful people, really great people, but it wasn't right. It just didn't work. So I gave up and some years later, 2009, 2008 probably, three of us, Anke Dill and Gusti Rivinius and I, were in Belgium to play with a, with a French pianist whom we all didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> but somehow the three of us felt really, really incredibly fantastic together. And we went for a walk and we said, let's form a group. And then Gusti said, I'm already playing quartets with my brothers. I don't want to play quartets. <laughs> and actually, I sort of thought, yeah, I mean, we're, we're not students anymore and we don't live in the same town. And, it's... and so Gusti said, why not quartets? And so we looked for two other people, had a couple of tryouts, but then found the right, what seemed like the right combination of people. And it's actually a very heterogeneous group of five people at quite different ages and in different phases of their lives, but we have a perfect relationship. It's the kind of relationship where my first violinist in the quartet said, keep dreaming, you'll never find something like that. But you found it. I found oh, it. Oh, great. Yes, I found That's it. Absolutely. Wonderful. And so now we don't live in the same town and we we just meet before we have concerts, we rehearse and then we play and then we everybody goes home again. We're good friends. We still eat together, travel together. There's absolutely no tension. There's a great sense of humor all the time and it's fantastic. So I think it has more to do with the, the good luck of having found people that happen to be on the same wavelength because we don't a lot of things we don't need to rehearse that we used to rehearse a lot in the quartet like play together quartet play in tune. To, yeah <laughs> exactly intonation with the quartet and hours and hours days yeah. weeks months working on a single piece sometimes right. we, should, we should say that to our listeners like you said we still travel together because there are so many stories of quartet musicians traveling separately for Absolutely. the same concert yeah. um, i think was the i don't know amadeus quartet uh, perhaps one of them is taking a train, the other one is going by airplane, the other right. one is taking yes, the bus. Right. And uh, uh, they don't even talk before the concert. They just no. go on the stage and then play, and maybe they play great. But then after the concert, nobody looks at each other and just leaves. I'm, I'm personally not sure how that could work, but I know several quartets where it was, is or was like that. I mean, not is, I guess the two I'm thinking of have packed up. I finished, okay. Yeah, but that's, it is so intense, you know, it really is so intense. And so... To have a relationship where there's not somebody who says, oh, you want it to sound like this, eh, 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 you know, and then it's clear, <laughs> uh, okay, forget that. People being defensive is, a, is, a, big, is a, a big problem in chamber music, in my opinion, and to have, to have a group in a situation where no one is ever defensive. People's ideas get tried out and then we make a common decision as to how we're going to play it this time and maybe we'll even play it differently the next time and there's never anyone who tells you where how to play something you know it's, it's just a wonderful balance so quartet or chamber music playing i guess but quartet is is very specifically so difficult like once the piano comes in it's a very different kind of electric a different kind of intonation approach for instance Absolutely. when you're with the strings only then you can tune the hell out of everything That's once right. the piano comes in you really cannot or no. you don't have to anyway no, no. i think the piano is also a wonderful cover-up for all kinds of little sins that simply don't hear <laughs> that's true it's just the way i think it really is so uh, to play piano quartets or even piano quintets or trios is just technically so much easier than to play string music only, like quartet, quintet, sextet. 
Yeah, you have to have an unbelievably secure cellist uh, that you can really base your intonation on, and then everybody has to have an ear that's roughly hearing the same. You know, that's that's another thing. It's just mm -hmm. like with rhythm. I don't think you can really buy that with money, or it has nothing to do with how famous somebody is. I remember playing with a very good pianist friend of mine, who American pianist, who was so eager to rehearse and always, I mean, much more so than other people in his famous position who just come in and have one rehearsal and play the concert. He was really willing to rehearse, but it didn't do any good because we just didn't, we weren't on the same planet as far as um, especially rhythm was concerned. And, and I've learned that that's something that either it works or it doesn't. Sometimes it does work. This is also something interesting maybe for our non-musician listeners. What really goes on before one goes onto the stage? Stage is the last thing and sometimes it's easiest because you only have the length of the pieces and you're going to play through and that's going to be done. But before, sometimes it could be months to prepare and it is not so easy. We had such difficult things with our university things um, in Turkey. We had a concert coming up on next week, let's say, in a few days' time, and the new administration said, but you didn't ask for permission. Well, we got this concert date a year ago, you know, and we've been rehearsing. It, they don't understand that there's days, weeks, months of rehearsing goes into chamber music concerts if you're doing this professionally and you want to do a good job, not a wedding kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, and this we couldn't tell people, they didn't understand. They assumed that we just pick up the instruments and sit down. Oh, this is so nice, let's play. Oh, this was very nice. <laughs> so we'll see at the concert. It's that kind of impression that's really so wrong. The music that the printed music is only a clue to what's going to happen. That's true. And then all the incredible amount of small details, intonation, rhythm, as you said, nuances, dynamics, and how fast you're going to go, or this is too fast, too slow. It's very good to hear that you, you found that kind of a combination of people, musicians, with your quintet, because that is always the reason and people cannot leave their egos outside. I think you have to, even if you have an ego, you have to be able to put it aside before you go into a rehearsal with the with the chamber music group, quartet, but maybe particularly. Otherwise, um, you can kill each other inside. <laughs> it's true, and of course there are plenty of stories of how quartet members kill each other and scratch each other's eyes out. Um, that's not uncommon, <laughs> including jokes, you know, people who somebody visiting some uh, a violinist in the insane asylum and asked him about his musical career and what he was doing and make a long story short when he says did you play quartets oh, he goes all like he has a fit of <laughs> and then you understand why he ended up in the insane asylum <laughs> okay. so, he's in the asylum because of a quartet that's career right. okay yes. and um, but i think the, the the magic word is respect because i know that in my group, everyone has a big ego. Absolutely, I would say so. Okay. But there's such respect for each and everyone among each other that that's not a factor. That's just, you know, it's... Huh. When you really respect somebody for how they do something, you take them seriously, and you, if they suggest something, you don't just brush it off, but you, you take everything serious that's seriously that's being suggested, and then egos don't matter. No, I mean, maybe they're not huge egos, but you understand what I mean. I do, I do. There are five I do. people who definitely have um, a lot of self-confidence, and it, but it, there's never any, any of this defensive stuff just because there's so much respect. And I, I think that's, okay. that's really, that's the key to it for me. Uh, I understand. But, but what I meant, I guess, in that way, that combines that, when I, because when, with the ego I had thought of, like, I am right because I have such a big ego, I am so good, and, and but there's no insistence that one is right. Everybody could be right, and everybody could be right at the same time also. So, right, which uh, is but why the risk with the respect, it's balanced. Otherwise, there's no way to balance that kind yes, of ego. Yes, it's balanced. And, and that also leads to sometimes different interpretations on different occasions, which is absolutely wonderful to, to feel like something can happen in the concert that was not rehearsed. That, that's the magic of live performance, really, in yeah. that way. Yeah? yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's, for me, that's my musical heaven. 
<laughs> That's wonderful to hear. You have recorded. Let's start with the quintet's recordings. They can find them online or buy them or certainly online. So. Well, what, what are your recordings that you're really happy about? Well, the first recording we did was Bruckner Quintet and Zemlinski five pieces, um, pieces for a string quintet, two pieces for a string quintet, which were not recorded at that time. And we have made so far recordings with um, Andreas von Imhoff. It's called AVI label. I don't know if you know it. It's, okay. a, it's a smaller chain music label. And then we recorded the two Mendelssohn quintets uh, in maybe four years ago, three years ago, something like that. And next March, we're going to record the Brahms quintets, the F major and the G major. Those, those are the three that we have done so far. And we're actually still thinking of, of adding um, Brett Dean epitaphs as a piece by the Australian composer. I'm not familiar. Yeah, he's, he's a fantastic composer. We, we happen to know him personally. And we've worked with him. And yeah, we're friends, good friends, so we can also call him up and say, hey, what did you okay. <laughs> How did you mean this? So he's actually, he was a violist in the Berlin Philharmonic. He quit to be a, an independent composer. Everybody thought he was crazy to quit a job like that, to be an independent composer. But he's really been very successful since and he's written chain music and a viola con wonder, wonderful viola concerto and operas even. And he's being played at the Met in New York and, you know, all the big places. So he's he's been right to quit the orchestra and be a composer. And this quintet particularly, the epitaphs, um, has some reference to the G major Brahms quintet. And so we thought it'd be a nice combination to, to do that. It's mostly a question of, does it fit on the CD? <laughs> Lengthwise. You mean, yeah. Because we uh -huh. definitely want to do the two, two quintets by Brahms and then maybe add the Dean. Dean? Dean. So his name is? Brett Dean. Brett Dean, okay. Yeah. If the piece is not longer than 15, 20 minutes, I guess it can fit, but... It's about 20 minutes. Okay, yeah. so it'll be, it'll be difficult. Tight. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But then we've actually also done another project that was really such a great combination of old and new, which is uh, there are some madrigals for five stringed instruments by Gesualdo, which are incredibly fantastic, gorgeous, and completely harmonically so new and unexpected. Carlo Gesualdo, the See, Renaissance, uh, the, the yeah, um, Madrigals. Yeah, right. yeah, okay. Uh, great if you know them. Yeah, yeah, Is of course. Oh, I love them. Yeah. They, I mean, incredible so, music. Yeah, incredible music. And we actually combined five of those, of course, there are many more, but five of those with the Dean. So we would do one piece of Gesualdo Madrigal, and then as a movement of Dean, and then another Cesualdo. And the idea came from, we played in Rome in the spring, and they had a so-called Cesualdo project. And so mm -hmm. um, we tried it, and it was really, it's a, it was an amazing experience to have this back and forth from very new to extremely old. Well, Cesualdo obviously wrote these things as vocal music and you're playing with these strings yeah. uh, and Dean's pieces uh, can of course uh, if he's aware of this combination that his his music existed already or uh, he wrote that for that no, purpose? No, no, his music existed already, existed already but we discussed it with him and he, and he he's someone who very much uh, connects his music to tradition to I mean to you, you wouldn't know it when you hear it always but when you know it, then you okay. do hear those connections, and I think it's really, yes, a, a great way to to combine old and new. This is great to hear because I do love Gesualdo. I even did an article, and I always talked about him. Of course, the, he's very famous for the murders that he committed. That's right. That's right. Uh, but his music is for the time when he was com composed, very at the end of the very sixteenth century, early. 17th century yeah. harmonically it's i actually hear some film music. music and i know that this guy took this this harmonic progression from Gesualdo. i know i can, i actually exactly know what film i'm talking about and like moro lasso is there's incredible harmonic progressions and surprises and i always found it amazing and there is one group i will actually tell them it's longini marco longini his group they do an amazing intonation very slow interpretations 
but harmonically in this pure intonation because it's just voice incredible yeah. i love it yeah. i i love this all so it can work with the really nicely with the string quintet of course yeah i think as a, we were very happy with with this and you're going to be recording this uh, uh, next well, march it's a possible idea we wouldn't then do the you know switching back and forth but it depends on a lot of things i don't know yet exactly how it's going to come out but definitely the brahms and hopefully the dean and hopefully maybe also just one <laughs> well, talking about recordings, you recorded Bach solo suite for the cello, but for on the viola. Yeah. And that's that's the first thing I, I heard when I heard about you. I, I heard the recordings. How long ago was the, these recordings, the viola, uh, the suites? The suites, that's already quite a while ago. I think it was in 98, something like that. And I, I grew up in a family where Bach was the... Yeah, the greatest. Member of the family. Yeah, member of the family. <laughs> there was a huge portrait by Hausmann that was hanging on the wall. And it's another long story. But anyway, my parents just adored Bach. And I. there was a tradition of doing St. Matthew Passion in the family <coughs> at Easter. So I, I grew up with Bach just. And they listened to the Bach cantata every morning, every Sunday morning, which is on in the very radio. And heaven forbid if any of us would say something. Shh. <laughs> you didn't even talk when the radio was, was playing. More important than than uh, <laughs> going to the service to church or something. So it was kind of in my blood. And my father was a cellist, not professional, but at heart, very much a cellist. And he loved the Bach suites. And and I just, yeah, I just at some point got the idea that I thought they would work beautifully on the on the viola. Because, partially because number six, of course, was written for a for the pomposa, mm -hmm. which was played da braccio. Yeah. Yeah. And so I had a phase of a whole year of just playing Bach for, in preparation for this. I just played basically nothing else. And I tried tuning down and, uh, you know, lots of stylistic things as to how I would want to finally record it. It's, a, it's kind of a still only a how it was then. I think I might do some things differently now, but. I ended up playing at normal pitch and with my regular equipment. I didn't put special strings and for a whole while I played a whole step lower, which you might find difficult, but <laughs> I tried to do that. I, I do play the baroque violin, so I am yeah. familiar. Uh, I was going to ask, because yes, you play with normal pitch, but 442 or something like that? 440, yeah. 440, mm -hmm. okay. But with normal strings, not gut strings or the well, they bow were, at that was, time they were uh, gut strings, but wound gut strings. Okay. You know, at that time they didn't have those what I call plastic strings that we play now. <laughs> <laughs> the, actually, that has improved quite a bit now. You're right. It has yeah, improved it's such a lot. Amazing. Yeah. Because I remember in the early '90s playing, and then you you had to take out your pair of scissors and then start shaving the strings because they started peeling off you know bit and bit <laughs> and it, intonation was horrendous because it, strings would not it. stay in tune yeah. and yeah. I still do that but the strings are actually much more reliable than what, how they were 30 years ago Absolutely. it's amazing yeah so I will never forget I just have to tell you one little anecdote about this please when yeah. they were still gut strings we played with a quartet and uh, we were on tour in Austria. I remember this so clearly, I'll never, never forget it. And we played 59-3. And 59-3, of course, has the third and fourth movements are connected, the minuet and the fugue. There's a fugue at the end. Okay. And the viola starts the fugue. <laughs> it's a great <laughs> fugue. And in the minuet, I broke my G-string. As the strings tended to still break in concert, that that still was a common experience. Nowadays, doesn't happen anymore, okay, or very, yeah. very mm -hmm. rarely, much more rarely. Anyway, so I had to pull on, put on a new string, and because they were gut strings, of course, I could tune all I wanted. It was flat in it no just time. <laughs> <laughs> and there came the, come the, came the beginning of the fugue, and I had my G string was almost a half tone flat. <laughs> no, no chance to tune. So I had to refinger everything to try to wow, <laughs> not that, make people notice that things were seriously wrong. And this is the kind of thing you have nightmares about, you know. <laughs> I, I, I know, I know. that Exactly. When the strings go down, if your know, tuning goes down, then you have to push your fingers forward, but only for that string. So that means you know, right. for when you move to the other strings, you have to go back to where you, you would it's, be normally. It's definitely a, a pretty acrobatic test. For it sure. is. 
But anyway, I'm thinking of it because I'm, I'm convinced that Bach would have loved the progress that has been made with the equipment, with the materials. Because he was somebody, from all I know, who was always curious about new developments of instruments, of keyboards, of stringed instruments that were not so formed yet as they are now. There's a violin, a viola, and a cello, but there were tons of different stringed instruments at the time. And he himself, of course, transcribed a lot of his music for different instruments. Like if you just think of the fifth cello suite that he also Certainly. wrote for lute in a different key because it suited the lute the better. Instrument better yeah. And so all of this gave me the courage to say he would have not objected to me playing them on the on the viola. Modern, modern the viola. Oh, viola, I don't think he would at all. You have no idea yeah, how many yeah. times people come say, how dare you do that? They said cello pieces. It's, you know, it's like really? you're stealing Ooh. these. Yeah, no people have such a, fundamentalism. Many people really, don't have understanding for just saying, you know, works beautifully on the viola. And yes, you have to do a few transpositions. But then when you look at the number four, for instance, he put trans trans. Uh, he how do you call it? Like different octaves where he didn't need to. I mean, he he skipped octaves where there would have been no need, but he decided to do it. So I don't think it's such a big deal, you know. It's not like playing the Opus 69 Beethoven cello sonata on the viola, where you can't really do the polyphonic um, correspondences between the two, two instruments. That I think ruins the piece. So okay. I did that once, and then decided that it didn't I needed, work. No, that was disrespectful of the piece. But with the Bach suites, I think it works great. I agree. I actually have a friend who recorded some of them on the double bass, too. This is another good point. When people compose in the Baroque period, there was so much freedom for the performer. I mean, Bach was one of the, certainly the father Bach was one of the strictest because whatever ornamentation he wanted, he typically notated. But majority of Baroque composers just left the music almost partly complete and you had to fill in the gaps basically the way you liked. Yeah. So every performance was a new invention in many That's ways. Right. Yes, absolutely. There are certain stylistic things and I am very aware. For me, the more than the tuning, sound color, of course, the uh, gut strings, but the bow makes a huge difference. When you use a, tort, a modern bow, uh, then you can do things like martelle and staccato, which people didn't really do at that time uh, right. with the modern understanding or did not play anything so flat straight any right, kind of right. long sound. Those are the stylistic important things, but you can, of course, play the Bach. And I do agree that they actually would be like, wow, look at that, that actually sounds quite good. You know, if you could do this convincingly, it doesn't matter what instrument you do it, because they did yeah. it themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I think they, they were not nearly as uh, sort of narrow-minded as, as in some ways we are these days. It's the same as what you said about, you know, ornamentation and improvisation. I think it's a, an art that's lost. It is lost. I mean, I know, luckily, I know a few musicians who haven't lost it, but but it's really rather the exception than the rule. And you don't find many people anymore who improvise cadenzas and solo pieces, solo uh, concertos and things like that. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful art. I actually always ask my students to write their own cadenzas, at least to write their own cadenzas. That's great. <laughs> if not, improvise them in the concert. No, I think so. it, it's for uh, the culprit is the, the new, um, at least in the 20th century, the conservatory system. They, they put it, like in my education, they put it on, on us such a straight jacket that it was like a box. You could That's not right. think outside of it. You could not even express anything outside of it. Uh, it really was bad because even like people who wanted to play jazz, who had an uh, interest, you, as what uh, your friend, the um, dean, the composer, quit Berlin Phil and you know became an independent composer. I understand that because it's a calling. That's very important. What is your calling? This is a message to the students now, maybe. Because it doesn't matter what orchestra. Orchestra orchestras never made me happy. I mean, I, uh, I played with orchestras but certainly never desired to have a full-time position in an orchestra. I did very early on and it, I knew that it wasn't for me. Once that, it was 1990, I left the orchestra and I've been happy. I love orchestral music, but as a full-time job, that's a very, very different animal, let's call it. Yeah. So 
I'd like to have my freedom in many ways. Like I, right. I play this, I play that. So it is important what, when students are uh, choosing what to do with their careers, if they were going to play instruments, what kind of jobs are they imagining? That's very important. That's true. I have a little bit of a hard time with this because having taught students for over 30 years, viola students, 95% of them, for them it's the best thing that can happen if they find a good job in an orchestra. And plus, I, I agree with you, it wasn't for me either. And yes, especially now living in Munich, I love, I just did a couple of days ago, going to Isar Philharmonie and hearing the Munich Philharmonic. There's such a great orchestra, it sounds so fantastic. And yes, I still wouldn't want to play there every day. But on the other hand, it's kind of hard to say that when you know that, at least in my case, you know, I, I was educating them to be orchestra players in the great majority of cases. Mm -hmm. And... Um, the story about a calling is, is, I agree with you, but we all have to eat <laughs> and ask people when they, or I used to, no, I don't mm -hmm. teach anymore, but, or not, I don't have my private students, I mean, mm -hmm. long-term students anymore. But I used to ask them, could you see yourself in the back of the Oldenburg Symphony Orchestra viola section? Do you think you would be happy there? If your answer is yes, then I'm happy to teach you. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, they're, they're, yeah. they're has to be a, be a plan B. There has to be a plan B. Like, what do you do if you don't get an orchestra job? Now, luckily, most of my students did get orchestra jobs and or other, like, chamber music groups, this and that. But there has to be some kind of alternative, obviously. So I wouldn't make them think about what would they do if, it, if this plan A didn't work out. And I've had students, like, one of my students became the principal in the Gewandhaus Orchestra in Leipzig. It was her first job, it was really amazing, and she fantastic violist, but she quit after two or three years because it just wasn't for her. So sometimes you only find out when you've, when you've actually tried it too. It's not so clear. For me it wasn't so clear. I, I didn't rule out that I would ever be a member of an orchestra. It just somehow didn't... My life went in a different direction, so it never became an issue. But, you know, it's difficult because as it a piano teacher, you, you, obviously you can't say orchestra playing is, is no good. Because <laughs> no, for everybody, for anybody, yeah. basically, as you said, you know, you, as even soloists have to do a combination of these jobs, like teach yeah. uh, university jobs and play chamber music. But uh, majority of instrumental musicians do have to get a job in an orchestra if they can. That's right. Uh, and Or it, even if it's not a full-time job, still play in orchestras. And if they're good enough and they're lucky enough, might play more chamber music and all that. But sometimes without trying, it, it doesn't become obvious. You don't see it. It's not so pronounced. That's right. I have two friends. They both studied violin at the same time with, with us. And one of them became a very famous composer, quit the violin. But these people maybe... They, they have these inclinations from the beginning. This was like very early with the keyboard, electric keyboards. And he had one and he was trying different things, the sound effects. And he became a new age composer, but he also writes symphonies and all that. Another one even came to Germany, studied Baroque violin. Now he's an amazing bandoneon player. He records, uh, I'm right. like, every time I listen to him, he's, he's a great musician, but uh, ended up staying as a musician, but not with the violin. Right. Well, I think it's what, you know, how open-minded you are toward um, what your inclinations might be. Um, for me, I, I always just wanted to play concerts when I grew up, and, you know, that was my goal. And then I took a teaching job, which was a little bit like, well, you didn't quite make it as a living off the concerts alone and of course it was a wonderful job because I have a C4 professorship at a, one of the few Musikhochschulen in Germany is, is a great privilege but I was too young too stupid to know that until I found out that teaching actually was a calling for me okay <laughs> which is uh -huh. interesting because I I had no idea you know until I started and I did that because we wanted to have a family and we needed to have one of us have a fixed income and we both were freelancing before and so it just seemed a little too insecure <laughs> and so I took this job only to find out what a blessing it was. For me it's yeah it was one of the great great things that happened in my life. It didn't keep me from playing concerts but 
it also added something else that I didn't have before. But there is the happiness that you've educated a whole bunch of violists and who have careers now, and that's also a great accomplishment. It's like the CDs of your performance, but also these are the recordings of your teaching merits. Well, it's true, but I would say the most satisfying thing about teaching is to see, to see young people make the most of their gifts and to, to grow and to blossom and to help them make the most of their gifts. That's, that's an incredible joy that cannot be surpassed by any outward success of having found a job, which of course is great too, but <laughs> you know, it's this, this sense of coming into their own, being able to solve their own problems, become their own best teachers. That's incredible. That's the most satisfying that I found. And, and the relationship with this, like my second family. I have this huge family of students that are you know, living far and near and far, and I have contact with almost all of them. And yeah, like the other night, three of them are playing this Munich Philharmonic now, and it's nice to go there and listen to them. Ah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I need tickets. <laughs> they actually even offer them. They're so sweet. But it's it's just yeah, that's the great gift of it, I think. And then I it's just like with other things. I discovered something about that I had as some kind of a gift uh, that I didn't know about before, you know, my curiosity about teaching and, and developing my own philosophy about it, about it and, and approaching every student differently as to what they seem to need to develop channels of how can I communicate best with this person. And it would be very different at times, you know, extremely different. Some, uh, I would reach this way, others another way. <laughs> yeah, it was just always like a, a very adventurous journey with lots of incredible discoveries, wonderful discoveries for the most part. <laughs> wonderful. Barbara, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, thank you for the drinks and I had a great Great time, thank you. And I'm sure people will like it because we talked about your career, but also it gave us an opportunity to talk about the backstage, what happens behind the scenes kind of thing. And that was great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for joining me today at another Open Windows podcast of Hit the Road Cultural Journeys. Until next time, all the best.